0: This morning, I was thinking on my way over here that this is the first time I'm preaching at Valleybrook that isn't for an internship or a class or anything. This is just because I love teaching, and that's, that was meaningful this morning, so thank you guys for letting me do this. This is just because I love to preach, and you guys let me do it, so thank you. Uh, and as always, I get much more out of it, preparing and everything, than you do. I can't have time to fit it all in, but I got a lot out of preparing this message, and I'm going to pray that hopefully the Spirit works through me to give you something as well. So bow your heads with me before we begin. Father, be with us this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of your word and your church that we come together not to learn more about a book but to know more about you, that that doesn't come through clever preaching, that comes through your spirit. So we ask in the name of Jesus that your spirit would be with us this morning that we may through your word know more about you We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to preach a sermon now. The text is 1 Samuel 7 and 8, chapter 7, verse 3, through chapter 8, verse 9. That's the next section in our series on 1 Samuel. And here's my plan. I'm going to tell you the plan. My plan is to set up and read the text. Then we're going to draw one big point out of the text. We're going to read the story, and I think the author is making one loud point in the story. Read the text, exegete the text, which means pull the point out of it. And there's a side plan. My side plan is to kind of demonstrate for you good principles of Bible interpretation so that when you're reading the Bible at home, we should all be reading the Bible, that you have the ability to kind of pull the meaning out of the text for yourself. So it's going to be demonstrating good exegetical principles. But the main point, read the story, get the point out of the story. Everyone understand the plan? We're all good with the plan. Okay. So first, set up and read the story. So we're in 1 Samuel. But First uh, and Second Samuel in your Bibles. This is just to set it up because we need to know what story we're reading. First and Second Samuel in your Bibles are two books. But in reality, it's one book. They got split up. In history, because of scroll length at a certain time. But in reality, first and second Samuel make up one epic novel that's supposed to be read as one large story. And first and second Samuel, the book of Samuel, is a big story with plot development and character development and plot twists made up of little stories. And I get to showcase my pretty amazing clip art skills this morning. It's one story made up of a bunch of little stories. There's about 80 little vignettes or scenes within the story of Samuel that the author has carefully, thoughtfully compiled together in a specific order. He's put poems in there and genealogies. And all of these little stories come together to make up the book of Samuel. So this morning, we're reading chapters 7 and 8, which is one little pericope, one little scene that was specifically tied together to make up the big book. And we should remember that this epic novel of Samuel, this epic piece of literature, is really just one book on the bookshelf of the history of Israel. The history of Israel is nine epic novels. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And you could kind of put... Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah is a second level story, but all nine of these individual epic stories made up of little stories are supposed to be read as the larger history of Israel, and it's not just history, it's pointing towards the gospel. It is history, it's important to believe the stories actually happened, I believe in the inerrancy of the stories, but if you just read them for history, you've already lost, you're already not going to get the point out of the text. The points in the text to understand the passage, the plan is to understand the passage to get that. Before you start, you have to realize this is going on, that we're reading one story in the set of Samuel, and Samuel is one volume in the history of Israel. And the history of Israel isn't just a history book. It's making big cosmic theological points about God and man and what it means to be a human relating to the divine. That's what the big history is going over. Okay, I know that's review, but it's important to keep that in your brain before you even open the book. Otherwise, you're going to lose. You can't understand what the text is trying to say unless this is all in your head before you start reading. Okay? Out, we're all good? Yeah? Okay. Also, what, uh, so we're in chapter 7. So what happened last week? This, previously on this episode of the Bible, what happened? I'll just got to kind of run into the story. We've got to know where we're going. In the book of Joshua... They took the land. The Israelites conquested the land. They drove out the Canaanites. They took over the promised land flowing with milk and honey. Then in the book of Judges, there was 400 years of sin, spirals of sin, gross sin, gross in both senses. There was lots of it and it's like icky sin. And so then the book of Judges ends. You start the book of Samuel And the character of Samuel is introduced with a couple little stories. But then on a national level, the glory of God leaves. And that's what my dad preached about. The Ikavod, the glory of God, the Kavod, left. So Israel is just like every other nation. They're abandoned by God. They're alone in the world. But then the ark comes back. God beats up the Philistines by himself. He doesn't even need an army. And then the glory of God returns. And that's where we are this morning. So they took the land. They sinned. God left. Now he's back. Now we're going to read the story. We're all good? That's the setup for the text. So, turn with me in your Bibles, it will be on the screen too, to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to read a story from the word of God. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you, that's an idol, And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people put away all the Baals and Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines had heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound uh, in that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Beth-kar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Then the Philistines were subdued. And did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year from Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for that was his home. And there he would also judge Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. This is chapter 8. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. It's a good opening. (laughs) And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they have said to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so now they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of a king who shall reign over them. This has been the word of God for the people of God. Okay, so that's the story. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. I think... When you're reading a story like this, so you're doing your quiet time, you're at home, you're reading, you come across in your reading plan, 1 Samuel 7 and 8, when you come across this kind of story, it's hard to see what the point of the author is. So remember, our plan is to pull the point out of the text. If you're sitting at home doing your Bible reading, it's not super clear what this story is about. So I'm going to try to get us from reading the text to what the author is trying to say because I think he's actually saying something very loud and important about Uh, humanity in general, but we got to get there. So the first step to take, a first thing to do when you're doing Bible reading is, first of all, you have to get the surface level data to be understood. So a story like this might be hard to even really understand what's going on because it's such a removed story. There was, uh, they burnt a baby lamb in this story. There was holy war. God spoke from heaven. Uh, You might not be familiar with the geography. There's like, it's hard to even understand the data in this story. So before we can move to interpretation, we have to figure out what the story is. Okay? Step one. And the story has four, uh, four events. These are the four things that happen in the story. One, Israel repents and turns to God. Two, God defends Israel from the Philistines. Three, Israel follows Samuel faithfully for some years. And then after a while, they say, actually, we want a human king. We don't want God to be our king anymore. It's kind of weird. The other nations have kings and we, we can't even see God. This is weird that we don't have a king. We want a human king. And God says, okay. And that's the end of the story. So that's the, if you're reading this at home, you summarize the events so you at least know what's going on in the story. And that's, that's the story. They repent. God defends them. They follow Samuel for a while. And then they go, actually, no, we want a human king. And that's it. <laughs> still, though, I think it's, can you, really, can you really feel clearly? What's the author's point here? I don't think so. I think maybe if we were reading this at home, you're doing your quiet time, you come across the story, you say, okay, I heard in church you're supposed to summarize the story, so you do this. It's still not super clear what the interpretation would be. You could try to make some for your life, for example, The importance of repentance, point one. Uh, Or if you repent, God will defend you from your enemies. Or God should be king of your heart. You shouldn't have human kings. And that's all true. Obviously, none of that is false or sinful. But I think the problem here, the reason why it's hard to see clearly what the author is trying to say, is because you're reading this, or if you're reading this, just myopically, this is the one story I'm reading. I'm doing my quiet time. I have to get my application for my life right now. You're not going to be able to see the bigger point that the author is making. The way to see what's going on here, because he is making a big cosmic point in this story, the way to get to that interpretation is to tie this story in to the history of Israel that the author of Samuel is assuming you have in your head. So when you read this story, the author of Samuel is assuming that you have Genesis through Judges. You have those stories in mind. And when you think that way, you see that these events are actually very clearly tied into a grand arc, making big theological points. So I'm going to show you what I mean here. This story is actually following a very common two-step pattern in biblical stories. There's a two-step story that happens all over the Bible. It's a period of dedication followed immediately by a period of idolatry. So chapter 7, they're dedicated to God. There's a bunch of words about dedication. They turn holy to God. They pray. They offer sacrifices. But then you turn the page, chapter 8. It's not even like separated by a couple verses. It's immediately followed by idolatry. We want a human king. We don't want God to rule us. We want a human king. So the, the whoop, the wharf of the story is this two-step dedication idolatry thing and so when you see that that's the pattern of the story you get to see that that's actually happening all over the Old Testament and you can tie into this bigger point the author of Samuel is making so let me show you the first where's the first place we see this kind of story dedication idolatry page 2 and 3 page 2 and 3 of the Bible Genesis 2 they are dedicated to God we're going to keep the rules and stay in the land don't eat the fruit, and you get to stay in the garden. And they even walk around the land in the cool of the day with God, the way Samuel walks around the land. Remember, he makes his circuit in the land. Keep the law, stay in the land. Don't eat the fruit, stay in the garden. Keep the rules, stay in Israel. And they're dedicated. They walk around the land with their leader. But you turn the page, it's not even a couple ch- verses later. You turn the page, chapter 3, what do they do? They commit idolatry, they eat the fruit. But it's not just like eating the fruit. It's saying we want to be God. Remember Adam and Eve? I want to be like God. It's the same sin. Genesis 2 and 3 is 1 Samuel 7 and 8. Do You see the author of Samuel is specifically tying his story into this larger thing that's been going on. But then you keep reading. It happens again. Genesis 9 and 10 and 11. So you keep reading. God floods the world. Then they get off the boat. So Noah's family gets off the boat. And God says, okay, Noah's family, you guys are going to do what Adam was supposed to do. You're going to build a world to my glory, and I'm not going to flood you again. And he holds back nature, and he gives them laws to kind of protect themselves. And in Genesis 9 and 10, there's this period of dedication where it looks like humanity is going to build the world that they were supposed to build. They're going to live to the glory of God and produce prosperous, flourishing societies. They're gonna, humanity is going to fulfill the project God had intended for them. There's a period of dedication. You turn the page. Next page, Genesis 11. They build Babel. What does Babel say? To, for our own sake. It's specifically an act of idolatry. We're building the tower for our own name. Genesis 10 and 11 is Genesis 2 and 3, is 1 Samuel 7 and 8. Dedication immediately followed by idolatry. They build this caustic slave state called Babel. Keep reading on in the Bible. It happens again. So you can, probably, you can start thinking. Now that you're thinking in this big Old Testament storyline way, you can probably think of these more stories. So what happens in Exodus? Same story again. So now the, the Jews are our nation. There's four million Jews. They're down in slavery in Egypt. God takes them out of Egypt. He does the ten plagues, opens the water. They walk through. God kills Pharaoh's army. Then what do they do? Exodus 15? Remember the chapter? They sing a song to God. They sing this big poem God has worked salvation with his right hand. Mighty is the Lord. He throws horse and rider into the sea. He has worked salvation for us. And they come singing up to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, they say, okay, God says, okay, Israel, you're going to be the people that Adam was supposed to be. You're going to be the people that Noah's family was supposed to be. You're going to go into the land and build this prosperous nation to my glory. And then he gives them 10 commandments. And then he gives them like uh, civic rules and domestic rules. And they say, okay, we're going to do it. Dedicated. We're going to build the nation that we're supposed to be. We're going to live in the land to the glory of God. Turn the page. What immediately happens? They worship a golden cow. Dang it. It's the same story. Genesis 2 and 3, 10 and 11, 16 chapters of rules, period of dedication, immediately followed by idolatry, worshiping the golden cow. It happens again. The same story goes over and over. Numbers 19 and 20. Remember what happens here? So they leave Mount Sinai, and then they're supposed to go into the land, but. No one listens to Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb said, we can do it. No one listened to them. So now they have to walk around in the desert for 40 years. They're in the desert. And Samuel, uh, Moses, in Numbers 19, Moses preaches a sermon or kind of gives a speech about purity. It's ritual purity. They're saying we are physically a different people than the other nations. But Moses is also giving a speech about Uh, spiritual purity. We need to be a people wholly dedicated to God. We aren't like the world. It's a sermon about dedication. And remember, Moses isn't leading Israel. God is leading Israel. Moses is just supposed to be the guy who does what God says. So Moses gives this sermon about the importance of purity. It's dedication, turn the page, what happens? Ah, Moses is supposed to follow God's rule, but Moses hits the rock. And Moses does this thing where he says, I'm leading Israel. God's not in charge of Israel anymore. I know what's better. I'm going to take over Israel. Moses commits idolatry. He says, I'm God. I'm leading Israel. Just like Adam and Eve said, I'm God. I'm eating the fruit. Tower of Babel, I'm God. Exodus 32, we're with our own wealth making God. Do you see the point I'm making here? Everyone gets the same story dedication, idolatry. It happens again. Deuteronomy. You keep going, reading through the book of Deuteronomy. They go up to Mount Horeb. So they're about to enter the land. They're looking over the land. Moses can't go into the land because he did the rock thing. They're looking over the land. And Moses is giving him a pregame speech, like locker room before the football game. He's saying, you guys can do it. You're going to go in there. You're going to beat up the Philistines. You're going to take the land. You're going to be the nation you were meant to be. You're going you're to do it. You're going to build a f- prosperous, flourishing society to the glory of God. You're going to keep the rules. They all go, yes, we will. Yes, we can. Deuteronomy 30. Turn the page. Not even a chapter later. Immediately, chapter 31 They don't technically sin in Deuteronomy 31, but it's revealed or Moses perceives or sees that they're going to go into the land and commit so much idolatry that God is going to have to send them into slavery one day. Deuteronomy 30 immediately followed by a vision of so much idolatry that they're going to have to go into slavery. Keep going. Oh, that's from Calvin and Hobbes, the clip art of the guy, because I think that's what Moses did. On Mount Horeb. He just gave the sermon and then he sees the vision of them committing idolatry. My clip art is very impressive. I'm pretty proud of this whole thing. Okay, keep going. We're still in the story. Joshua 24. They go into the land. They kick out the Philistines. They do it. And then Joshua and they go up on another mountain, Mount Gerizim. Joshua 24, he gives that famous speech, choose this day whom you will serve. If Yahweh is God, serve Yahweh. If Baal is God, serve Baal. But stop limping between two opinions. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And then everyone says, yes, we're going to do it. We're going to keep the rules. We're going to be dedicated. We're going to build the society we were supposed to build to the glory of God turn the page it's not even it's not even later it's not even years later it's the same year judges begins 400 years of idolatry and gross sin period of dedication followed immediately by a period of idolatry all of these stories are supposed to be in your head before you open up the book of samuel so when you get to 1 samuel 7 and they say, we got the Ark back. Now we're going to keep the rules. Now we're going to be the prosperous society we were supposed to be. Is it any surprise that when you turn the page, chapter 8, they say, actually, never mind. We want a human king. We don't want God to be king anymore. We'll rule ourselves. Thank you very much. Do you see how when you tie this story, it's, it's kind of a weird, opaque story by itself. They repent and then they say, never mind. But when you... When you see that the author of Samuel is tying these events into a long history, it actually, he's, he's making a bigger cosmic point. And we don't have time to get into the New Testament, but I can't help talking about Jesus. In the New Testament, where do you see this? This happens again. There's another crowd. Remember? Remember? In one moment, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the same week, it's the crowd that says, crucify him, crucify him, we want Barabbas. So all of the stories in the Old Testament that are recapitulated and reiterated and retold end up in the Gospels. The Gospel writers are specifically telling Jesus stories that tie into this Old Testament arc. So the story doesn't end here with 1 Samuel 7 and 8. The story ends in Luke where they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Never mind, nail him to a cross. There we go. Now, do you see we're kind of moving from point, from text to interpretation? We're seeing how this text is one piece in this bigger narrative. But actually, the story doesn't end in Luke either. Where does the story end? It ends in your life. This is your story. You are the kind of people who one moment are dedicated to God and the next moment commit idolatry. No offense, that's just what the Bible says. We are the kinds of creatures, this is our life. The Bible doesn't hold up stories so you can say, oh man, they messed up. Look how bad they are. The Bible holds up mirrors to show you who you are. How many times have you done this? How many times have one moment you've been dedicated to God, producing the flourishing life and within the hour you've committed idolatry and said, never mind, I'm king. How many times have one moment you used your mouth to praise God and the next moment you go, never mind, I'm God, thank you very much. The story of 1 Samuel 7 and 8 is not so you can read it and go, they shouldn't have done that. The story of 1 Samuel 7 and 8 is saying, that's me. I'm the kind of person who continually is dedicated to God and within the hour make myself God. The point of the Bible is cosmic. It's not just reading a little story and like, making personal application. That's fine. I'm not trying to diss that way of reading the Bible. But we should see that the stories are making bigger sweeping points about humanity that end in the Gospels and end in your life. This is your story. You are the people who eat the fruit, build the tower, worship the cow, hit the rock, lie, sell God, get the new king, kill Jesus. This is our story. We got the point? Okay. So I'm going to summarize, if I can summarize it. So I said our plan Our plan was to move from text to interpretation. I'm going to have a summary statement. The interpretation would be something like this. Human dedication and effort cannot produce human flourishing, but will always lead to idolatry. The author is not making little personal application points. The author is, and this is purposely worded philosophically and ethereally, because I'm trying to show that the interpretation of the text is this big, philosophical point that he's making that this way of being human this whole mode of trying to do the human life where you say i'm going to pick i'm going to pick the the kingdom i'm going to pick what i think god wants and i'm by human will i'm going to make it that way of being human will always bend to idolatry because the problem is is the will the problem is your heart in this mode of being human will always bend in on itself and say never mind i'm god that's that's A philosophical way of putting it, human dedication cannot produce human flourishing but will lead to idolatry. But I don't really need to argue that because doesn't everyone, you already know this. Everyone knows this story, that this way of being human where I'm going to bring about, even if it's a good vision of God's world, if the way to get there, if the engine or the mechanism by which you attain that world is human effort, everyone knows that bends around and says, never mind, I'm God because the problem is human will. I want to make a couple points about idolatry before I move on. The, the, clearly, the sin in the Bible, the, the base problem in the Bible that the Bible paints, is not breaking rules for the sake of breaking rules. Lying, cheating, stealing, lust is never in itself the problem. It's always this deeper thing of idolatry where you say, never mind I'm God, and that leads to the breaking of the rules. There's an author; uh, he's considered kind of like the postmodern novelist. He's a genius, literary genius. His name was David Foster Wallace. He's never—he's not with us anymore. But David Foster Wallace was not a Christian, and he gets this point so well. This is—I'm just showing you that even the non-Christian world, the literary non-Christian world, gets this point. So this is what a postmodern non-Christian novelist says. He goes in the trenches. Of day to day adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. Everyone is a worshiper, and if there's any reason to worship something like Jesus, it's because every other god will eat you alive. That's a non-Christian, but he has good theology. He gets it. In the day to day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as an atheist. We are all worshipers. Either it's going to be, and if it's this mode of being human where your effort is the thing producing the human will. That, or the, the glorious life, the kingdom, the flourishing, prosperous society that will always bend around to idolatry. That's not just a Christian point. Thoughtful non-Christians know that to be true. There's another, there's a poet who wrote, this is again an atheist poet, a modern atheist poet who said, like my teacher taught me when I heard the crowd applaud, I thought I was an atheist until I realized I'm a god. And he doesn't mean I'm a god. He, goes, he means when I'm on stage and people are clapping for my poetry, In that moment, I'm not an atheist. I'm God to myself. I'm in my heart treating myself like God. This is, I'm just giving examples of how the literary world, thoughtful non-Christians recognize this truth, that this whole way of being human can't work. This whole way of being human, where human effort is going to produce the flourishing life, will always bend in, leading to idolatry and causing death. And I don't feel I have to argue that point very much longer because each one of you has lived that maybe this week. Okay? There's the point. So my first draft of the sermon actually was going to end here. (laughs) But because technically I did the plan. Remember, the plan was to read the story and then tell you what the story means. And the story says that this is not how to be human. But uh, I feel that would be kind of an awkward way to end the sermon. So I want to talk about, in the time remaining, and I might do this as my sermon next week, the biblical alternative. So there's a lot of stories painting this problem. What is the problem? It's human will itself is the problem. But there's also a lot of stories painting the biblical alternative, the way to live life, the way to produce the society and your relationship with God that we were intended to create. Okay? And this biblical alternative, it's a phrase that once I say it, if you're a Bible reader or you've been around church, you will know this phrase. You will have heard this phrase before. But it's not just an epithet. It's not just a, kind of bumper sticker phrase it's a specific category in biblical stories that is meant to be the alternative way of life this is the other way to be human the other phrase is living by faith and that's that's the problem is that has become a phrase we just kind of throw around i'm living by faith and that's fine but but the biblical authors kind of have a specific vision in mind this is the other way to be human and i'm not going to go through all the stories i don't even have clip art for these stories because uh, we don't have time. But this, this other means of interacting with God shows up in a lot of places. First, with Abraham. Abraham is the man of faith. He walks simply with God. He has, a, he has like a just continuous dialogue with God throughout his life. It's a simple, God calls him his friend. It's a simple living by faith. Joseph, David, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then the big place this phrase comes up is in Habakkuk. So remember Habakkuk in that kind of famous conversation between Habakkuk and God uh, where God says, I can punish a bad nation with a worse one. That's the second reference to Adam's song this morning, if you know Adam's song. God can punish a bad nation with a worse one. God says in Habakkuk 2.4, it's like he kind of steps into the story. So God wrote all of these stories about people living by faith and then God in Habakkuk kind of steps into the story and he goes, The righteous live by faith. This is the way to live. The other way, the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4, and then that verse becomes kind of the verse of the Apostle Paul. So if, if the Apostle Paul got like a tattoo on his ankle, that's what Christian, cool Christians do, they get like a verse tattooed on their ankle, the Apostle Paul would get Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous live by faith. He starts off his, his gospel to the, uh, in his epistle to the Romans, which is where he kind of theologically, he has acres of theology expounding the gospel. That's where he starts off, he says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew verse, and to the Greek for the gospel is revealed from faith for faith as it is written the righteous shall live by faith he starts off his gospel with this verse and then he goes chapters and chapters of theology and by the time you get to chapter 14 when he's ready to end his presentation he says therefore we can say whatever does not proceed from a life of faith is sin so this this concept, it's not just a phrase, it's, the, it's a way of being human called living by faith. It's mentioned in Habakkuk and then it becomes the book ends of the book of Romans. We don't have a bunch of time, but I want to try to define this concept. I hate when theology is, is airy and you don't have any hands on it, so I want to give just a little bit about what this other way of being human is, the life of faith, and then we'll end, Okay? This is the other way to go about living. And it's not just a phrase. It's a meaty reality called the life of faith. One. So I'm going to try to define it. Even though definitions, definitions are kind of hard for the most important things in life. Define love. Define happiness. Define the life of faith. It would be better if, if we could read the stories. Stories help us get these truths much better than definitions. But I'll still try with some definitions. So define living by faith. One. A person living by faith believes what the gospel says about them. So the gospel says you are forgiven and loved by God not because of what you have done but because of what he has done for you. He lived the life you should have lived. He took the death that you deserved. And believing that because of what he has done you are loved and forgiven, that begins the life of faith. I think believing those truths is much harder than believing in miracles Right? The world would say it's crazy to believe a man turned water into wine. It's ridiculous to believe someone rose from the dead. I don't have trouble believing that. What's hard to believe is that the all-sufficient, all-powerful, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, triune God of the universe forgives and loves me. The gospel is much harder to believe. But the life of faith begins with accepting what the gospel says about you. You wake up every morning believing that the verdict over your head is forgiven and loved. And you walk around with that being the truth. Regardless of what I have done, because he lived and died for me, I am forgiven and loved. Another second a second kind of hook in the life of faith that we see in these stories, a second kind of hook is, is this shift of priority. The priority in the other way of living was that the human will is going to produce the flourishing life, and, and righteousness for righteousness' sake is kind of the priority. Or, or emotional experience for the sake of emotional experience is kind of the priority. Or even ministry for the sake of ministry is the priority. The, the shift of emphasis in the life of faith is that the only priority, the only thing that matters, is maintaining a constant, conscious walk with God. My relationship with him is far more important than acts of faith for the sake of acts of faith. It's putting the priority upon a conscious, continual walk with God that you see in the stories. Again, it's easier if you read the story of how Abraham goes through life. His clear priority is walking with God. And he's not a perfect man. It's important to notice that the people of faith are just as messed up as we are because living by faith, again, is believing you're loved and forgiven first. And then the priority shifts to maintaining this walk is much more important than everything else. Finally, I think the third... Part of living a life of faith is to recognize that that reality of living in communion with God, that the infinite triune God has forgiven and loved you and that that is the most important part of my life, recognizing that that seeps into and that permeates every aspect of your life. John Piper says that believing that the glory of God is over everything should affect the way you drink orange juice. Every part of your life is now affected by this reality that you are walking with God. Living by faith in God is seeing that the way you go to work and the way you talk to everyone and the way you think about people, the way you feel, the way you get up in the morning is changed now by this relationship. This isn't a doctrine. I'm not trying to convince you of the doctrine of life of faith. This is an existential reality. It's two different ways of, of existing. The, the reality is that now by living in relationship with God, every aspect of your life has changed. Or to put it negatively, you don't get to wait to care about living by faith until circumstances get right, until your job gets less te- tedious and more meaningful, until p- those other people start acting the way they're supposed to, until, until the marriage gets good, until the kids start acting the way they're supposed to. Then I'll start caring about maintaining a conscious relationship with God. The person living by faith says regardless of the circumstances, purposefully, consciously maintaining a walk with God through every aspect of my life is the most important priority and that's predicated on the truth that you are loved and forgiven. You see, I'm not trying to convince you of a theology this morning. I'm trying to sh- paint for you the two portraits of how to live. There's the, there's the human will, which you think will lead to the good life, even if the picture you have in mind is righteousness or ministry or something. The problem is human will is totally depraved. It will bend in on itself and commit idolatry. The other way of life is this simple Abraham walk with God through everything you do. And it's, it's an existential thing. It's you're living in one or the other. John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Everyone in this room is living one of these ways. The Bible isn't making just little personal applications. It's painting these two pictures. So uh, I think I did my plan, right? My plan was to read the story and tell you what the story means. And then my side plan was to kind of demonstrate helpful biblical interpretive skills. So we have this whole way of reading the Bible as a big story, making theology points, not just application. Yeah? Okay. I wasn't waiting for a clap. (laughs) Okay. uh, That's it. I'll pray and the worship team can come on up. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. You could have left us in our idolatry, not giving us an alternative way of life. But not only have you saved us and redeemed us, but you have shown us how to live. Faith is not only how we are saved, but faith is how we live as saved people. I pray that your spirit helps us and guides us in this truth because it's impossible to get out of the other way of life and start living as people of faith without the work of your spirit. I also pray that we, when reading your word, with thoughtfully care, take care and notice about how you have artfully and masterfully sewn pieces together to show us what it means to be human. Thank you for your word. We pray for help and we ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.